I want you to direct your attention to the screen with me. I want you to consider something with me this morning. The catastrophe of Christmas. Wow. Has anybody ever thought about catastrophe, catastrophe fitting into the Christmas celebration? I mean, when we think about, when we think about catastrophes, we think about disasters, we think about ruins, we think about tragedy and a whole host of things, but do, have we ever really thought about that of, of uh, relating to Christmas? And, and two, we generally think, when we hear of a catastrophe, we generally think of human things, things on the horizontal. For instance, in 1969, Hurricane Camille came through Mississippi. 2005, Hurricane Katrina started in Mississippi and Louisiana and worked its way to wherever she wanted to go. We call that a catastrophe, and we'd be right and normal in saying so because there was obvious loss of life and property. But may I, may I submit to you this morning that the loss of property and the loss of life is not the greatest catastrophe of all. To illustrate what, I'm, what I want us to understand this morning, you can slip all the way back to Genesis. Adam and Eve were enjoying a perfect world, being perfect people, doing perfect things, walking with God every day in the Garden of Eden. And they exchanged their immortality and their perfection for a piece of fruit. Now, for many people, the sad tragedy, the catastrophe of that story is they got kicked out of the garden, had to go to work. And yet, may I suggest to you that that was not the catastrophe at all. Oh, yes, that was bad. The catastrophe was, now all of a sudden, a people who were designed to walk with God every day, to commune with God, to follow God, to be obedient with God, all of a sudden found themselves hiding because they no longer had a relationship with their Creator. And I suggest to you, I submit to you that that's the catastrophe today. God created us to have fellowship with Him, to walk with Him, to talk with Him, to listen to Him, to commune with Him. And that has been lost. Once that catastrophe happened in the Garden of Eden and they were kicked out, it just began to mushroom. I mean, a couple of chapters later, you find Cain killing his brother Abel. Now, most of us would say, well, that's a catastrophe. Look at that dysfunctional family. They're killing. He killed his sibling. Well, that is a catastrophe. But, I, but you know, to me, that's the result of the greatest catastrophe because, you see, Cain was the first one of a modern-day believism. Cain was the first one who wanted to go to God on his own terms instead of the way that God had designed. And I think Cain's spirit is alive today. Many, even inside what we call the body of Christ, the house of God today, tend to want to go and, and commune with God on our terms. And we cannot do that. We cannot tell God how we will commune with Him. Cain tried to commune with God on his terms, and he wound up killing his brother because it's always somebody else's fault when you miss God. So the catastrophe there was that Cain was not obedient. You can move a a few more chapters in the Bible, and you find a guy named Noah. And we think that the catastrophe there was that all but seven people were killed in the flood. Can you imagine as that massive ark rolls off of the earth, those folks trying to tread water, trying to get in the boat, 
But it was too late. Yes, it was bad that the people died, but the worst thing was that they had 120 years to get on board with what God wanted them to get on board with. And after 120 years, they still refused to bow to God. Can you find any resemblance in those three situations in Genesis with the world today? You see, the catastrophe of Christmas is not about... (laughs) Some of you would say, yeah, Brother Jerry, I know about the catastrophe of Christmas. I'll get my credit cards. I'll get my credit card bills at the end end of December. That'll be a catastrophe. Well, that is a catastrophe of your own making. But it's against the backdrop of trying to figure out this thing of what a real catastrophe is. That I want to direct your attention to Luke chapter 2. That is where we studied last week. That is where we talked about last week. Would you turn to Luke chapter 2, please? Luke chapter 2. Last week we read verses 1 through 20, which has traditionally historically been termed the Christmas story. And to me, hidden away in the Christmas story, that celebration of Christmas is the real catastrophe. If you will stand, let's read this verse. Most of us can quote it. She gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him snugly in cloth and laid him in a feeding trough. Because there was no room for them in the end. Folks, for my two cents worth That is catastrophe of Christmas today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is my prayer today that as we look at at your word, as we look at the day that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. As we realized that that night there was no room for him in the end. No room for him in this world. I pray that we will do a personal evaluation and see if there's no room for him in our hearts and in our lives today. In your name, amen. I begin by saying to you that this has been a a struggle as I prayed through and developed this message. Because because the truth to me is so emotional. I mean to think that God put a plan in place to redeem and reclaim his lost creation. And that in that manger in Bethlehem, in that baby, he was God's son. He was God's provision. He was God's plan. He was God's promise. He was God himself. And there was no room for him. I want to take that thought. I want to take that thought. 
no room for him. And I want to talk to you about three, three pieces of symbolism that can speak worlds to us. If we'll not let this be just another sermon, but if we'll let this be a message. On the back of your bulletin, you find number one, there's no room. There was no room that night in the hotel. Now you like that, don't you? No room that night in the hotel. Now, there's no room at an inn or a hotel. Well, I understand that a hotel is a skyscraper and it's a modern-day adventure, but if you think about this, the inn and the hotel do basically the same thing. They, they cater to people, they tend to people, and for a fee, they, they allow people to stay. But here's what I want you to say, see. When this word hotel came to my mind, it, it reminded me of the whole world. The hotel represents the entire world. There was no room that night in the world. There's no room today in the world. It still continues. Have you thought about it? Look around. I was reading this week. <sighs> Office Depot. Radio Shack. Staples. Best Buy. We can go to many other businesses and who have made conscious decisions to remove Christmas from their advertising. In fact, Staples went so far as to say, we chose to take Christmas, to not use the word Christmas, so that we do not offend anyone. Well, can I just tell you a secret? I'm offended. I mean, we could list all kind of businesses that, that literally shun our Lord. And the only way they're able to get away with it, brothers and sisters, is that they've not seen the light in us. They've not seen the salt in us. They've not seen the life of Christ in us. And the truth is, this world, just like back then, wants no part of Jesus. In fact, with respect to Mike and, and the city council here, because I don't really know, we've not really talked about it, but there are many state, local, and certainly the federal government who don't want Jesus anywhere to be seen. The manger scene has been taken away. Christmas trees have been taken down because somebody may call it a Christmas tree instead of a holiday tree. I was talking to a DOM the other day in South Louisiana, a longtime friend, and he said, you know, I was walking out of Walmart and this lady said, happy holidays. And he said, and he said I stopped and I turned and he said, Merry Christmas. And she, she startled. He goes, look, he said, when it's 4th of July, do you say happy holidays? When it's Labor Day, she said, no, I really don't. I guess I've just gotten in the, the habit. You see, folks, there's no room. There's no room in this world. And you know why there's no room? You know why governments and why businesses have excommunicated Jesus? Because if they recognized that Jesus was Lord, Jesus was the Christ, then they would have to submit to who he is and what he says. And they, like us, don't really want to submit to anybody. We want to have the, we want to submit maybe to our grandparents or to tradition, but to submit to Jesus and His Word—that's a little more than we signed on for. In fact, I'd go this far: if the world is a hotel. 
It seems to me that as I have looked around the world that there is a large no vacancy sign out for Jesus. In the aftermath of uh, Katrina, Ann Graham Lotz was on TV and she was asked about how you could balance God's love with this catastrophe. And he said, well, and then they went on to ask about the 9-11. Went back, said, how can, you, how can you balance all these things against God's love? She said, well, listen, for the last 50 years, we have told God we don't want you. We have said we don't want you in our schools. We said we don't want you in our government, and we don't want you in our public life. And God, being the gentleman he is, has graciously backed out. And she said, and when God graciously backs out, so does his protection. You see, there's no room for Jesus today in the world at large. In this hotel, there's no vacancy because we already have kings in our lives. And too often that king is us. There was no room in the inn. No room in the hotel. No room in this world. But now let me shock you. There was number two. That night, no room in the heavens. Oops. Wait a minute, Brother Jerry. Wait a minute, Brother Jerry. No room in heavens for Jesus? What in the world are you talking about? Wasn't he there at the beginning? Yes, he was. John 1 says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. All things were in the beginning, and not anything was created that was not created by him. Jesus was there. He's the Alpha and Omega. He was there when it started. He'll be there when it ends. But that night, that time, that period, there was no room for him in heaven, even though there was a vacant seat next to the Heavenly Father. And do you know why? Because God sent Jesus. He didn't ask him to go. He didn't allow him to go. He gave him. He sent him, in fact, out of the words of Jesus himself. John 6, John 7, John 8. I will not give you the verses, so maybe you go read all three chapters. Jesus said multiple times, I'm not here doing my business. I'm here doing the Father's business because He sent me. And when God sends us to do something, there is no room back home until we get it done. That is why when he ascended back to heaven, he could then go take his seat at the right hand of God. Because as he said, when he bowed his head, he said, it is finished. It's completed. I have done the work. I have completed what I come to do. You know, but that should, that should really resonate with us today. That should really resonate with us today. Because you think about it in human terms. I'm not going to say about today, but in days past, if the President of the United States decided to send an emissary to another country to forge a peace treaty, what would that President do if weeks later he found his emissary, who's supposed to be forging that treaty, in some hotel in Washington, D.C., with his feet kicked up and living off the land? It fire him. Because you see, when the president sent that emissary, he wanted him to go to the front lines and take care of business. 
That is what our Father wants. Only for Jesus, that's why there was no room there. And that's why when God gives you and me an assignment, that is why when he tells us what to do, there is no room for us in the pew anymore. We have to be in the street. We have to be on point doing what he called us and wants us to do. There's no room in the holy huddle when God is telling you to go. The sad truth, the sad truth is that while there's no room for in the hotel and while there's no room in the heavens, that's not the saddest truth of all. Dana's going to sing about that. Yeah. 
No room in our hearts. Those sad, sobering words are true. See, how sad is it that there's no room? Room for houses, lands, treasures. Room for all those things that Pass away. I suggest to you that any number of us in this room will get that last Christmas gift wrapped just in time to tear it open so that we can rush off to some other place and do something else that don't really have any eternal consequence. Is there room in your heart, in your life, in your schedule this Christmas for Jesus? I hear much about family traditions, family being together. How much of it involves more than the obligatory reading the Christmas story? How much of it is about him and all this? I want to suggest something to you this morning. Before I say this, let me clarify it. For years, we, I, us, have taught you invite Jesus into your heart to be saved. And you won't find that in the Bible. It's not there. What happens, the Bible says, with your mouth you believe, with your mouth you confess, and with, the heart you, with your heart you believe. The result of believing in Jesus with all your heart, soul, life, and strength. The result is that he does come into your heart. That's salvation. You believe. And when you believe, then he comes in. But the only way he comes in is if your heart's empty. And I started to do this, and I know the children in the congregation would have liked it. I started to fill that glass with dirt. I fill that glass with dirt. I can pack all the dirt I want to in it. Trust me, I did as a kid. But now, I started to fill that glass with dirt. I want you to think about this. If that glass is filled with dirt, and I take a bottle of water, and I try to pour that water and fill the glass with water, what happens? 
Very little, if any, of the water ever gets in. Oh, a little bit of getting in, but very little. Because you can't fill a glass that's already full. Please listen. God can't and won't fill a heart that's already full. If our hearts this year are full of houses, lands, treasures, family, other things, He will never come in and fill our heart. That is the catastrophe of Christmas. This is His time. At least ostensibly. It bears His name, Christ must. But do we make it His season? A family was sitting around their table for Christmas dinner. They had opened their presents and got all the things from Santa Claus and from each other. And the family looked down at the end of the table and there sat little Susie, a nine-year-old. She's eating very slowly and, and they said, Susie, did you get everything you wanted for Christmas? She thought a second. She said, no, I didn't. But it wasn't my birthday. This Christmas, are you going to give Jesus what he wants for Christmas? You know what he wants? He wants room in your heart. For some of you, that would mean the first time that you've invited him into your life. First time you trusted him. And when you believe him and trust him, that's where he wants to come take residence. Right in the center of your being. If you've already had that experience, it could well be that you've allowed your heart to become like the stony ground. And become so cluttered that there's no room for Jesus. How about you? How about today? Can you turn the catastrophe into a celebration? You can only if you make room for Jesus.